This is an ABC podcast. Would you feel more comfortable talking about your feelings to a robot? Well, it turns out if you were a child, chances are you would be. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the potential mental health benefits of chatting with artificial intelligence. Plus, how much would you pay, or rather not pay, to be able to edit a tweet and taking on and taking down one of the most controversial websites in the world? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, amongst many other things. I just completely hit my head on the microphone then like a professional. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Mark. Good to be here. And from Crikey... Cam Wilson, welcome back. Hi, good to be here. I forgot your job title. <laughs> Associate editor. <laughs> Internet boy was what we decided Internet last time. Internet boy, oh, that's wow. right. B-O-I? Just let me check on yeah, LinkedIn. Sure. If, <laughs> yeah. Just let me check on LinkedIn if you can be endorsed as internet boy. Please. You can be as do- endorsed as anything, I've discovered. Uh, now, okay, fair warning. If you've got kids in the car, we will be talking about the adult-only subscription service OnlyFans first up. I doubt we'll get into anything too racy, but I'm just flagging it as a concept that we're talking about first. Uh, why are we talking about OnlyFans first, Cam? What, what, what happened in the world of OnlyFans this week? OnlyFans has reported uh, some really big earnings. Uh, It is reported, I think, last year doing $4.8 billion worth of revenue and cashing in about $450 uh, $450 million of profit pre-tax. And this is all in American dollars. Um, Kind of announcing it as a really, really enormous tech company. Now, I know obviously it is a service that is associated primarily with adult performers. uh, And it's it's one that does, um, I think, get a lot of controversy around and a lot of attention because of that. But not often do I think, uh, do a lot of people pay attention to the kind of business aspects of it underlying. And as it turns out, it is, uh, it's a good business to be in if you're, (laughs) if you're providing the service. It's a good business to be in if you are the sole shareholder for this company. Which is what I didn't realise, right? So, I mean, OnlyFans, we have talked about, I mean, if you're not familiar with it, it is a service where, you know, people can set up and you can subscribe essentially to a person, right? And that yeah. person can can do, can provide content as they see fit. Absolutely. So it is open to everyone. It's not just open to you know, adult content creators. If you're a musician, if you're an artist, it's a place where your fans can connect with you, get bonus content, all that sort of thing. But let's be uh, honest, it's mostly <laughs> math stars showing off their their, their attributes. It, it is mostly... Uh, sex workers on the site. Absolutely. And one of the draw cards of OnlyFans as a site for, you know, this kind of content to live on is the fact that the creators get 80% of the revenue. Whereas if they were releasing this content through traditional pornography channels, they're not getting any of it really. Like, Which is huge, right? Because yeah. one of the biggest problems that's happened in the kind of the, the adult content space over the years is basically um, sex workers, as you say, their their work has often ended up on kind of tube sites, places mm. like Pornhub, where their work is basically, they, their ability to monetize that's been severely limited. So in some ways, something like OnlyFans is a 
it's a it's a game changer for people that work in this space, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's been hugely empowering for content creators to be able to exist on this site, cultivate their own fan bases, their own communities, and actually see some income from the work that they're putting in. They're, they're not being exploited anymore in the ways that they have been on traditional porn sites. But we should talk about this, this owner, because I didn't realise that there was pretty much one shareholder. Yeah. So, this, yeah. so th- that was the new part for me that I didn't realise. So uh, I'm going to mispronounce this. Uh, f- forgive me if I do. Uh, Leonid uh, Redvinsky is yes. the sole shareholder, this fairly reclusive shareholder behind OnlyFans who had a massive payday of late. Yeah, he's been paying himself a lot. Uh, he's he's made $500 million in the last two years. Not bad. With these record profits. He's just been raking in cash from it, from that 20% that goes to you know, running OnlyFans, you know, processing credit card payments, keeping the side up and running. And yeah, he's, he's making a bit of cash for a 40-year-old just sitting back, reaping the benefits. Why aren't there more competitors to this? I think there's a variety of reasons. It really has kind of dominated because it is easy to use and now has that brand name recognition. Like I'm, I'm not sure many other people could name off the top of their head other, um, I guess, creative-focused uh, websites that allow adult performers on there. It's also for a long time had this service where you could essentially refer other people and then you would get some portion of their income and that was really crucial to its um, success at the beginning because what would happen is you'd get creators who would go on there who were then also incentivized to bring on <laughs> other creators so I mean I guess that's God, it seems a little bit MLM but yeah, like... it's, a, it's a it's a pornography multi-level marketing company if you start <laughs> explaining it like that there's other analogies <laughs> we could go with but I feel like none of them are appropriate for this <laughs> this platform uh, and, and it's, it's really I think it's kind of become that 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 brand that everyone kind of knows and and, and goes to. Hmm. Does anyone lose out of the uh, the kind of the growth of OnlyFans? Look, <laughs> I've, 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 I've never seen you speechless before. <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. You know, it's benefiting creators. It's benefiting the sole shareholder. I suppose the the people that he bought the site off a couple of years back wouldn't be too happy about losing out on all these profits. I have done some research previously into a, a study that was done in Europe about excessive consumption of pornography. So maybe on the consumer side of things, uh, there has been a correlation between consuming a lot of pornography and not being able to become aroused by what the researchers deemed as normal sexual activity. But look, that study wasn't peer-reviewed. It was only a correlation. It was not causation. Honestly, I think that most major technological advancements can be tracked back to, in in the media (laughs) space at least, pornography. And I guess if that if that does bear out, right, that would be mm. an issue with, you know, pornography writ large, wouldn't it? It would be something that, Absolutely. you know, it would be, if, if that does end up being a thing in yeah. time, that would be something that, that would speak to the entirety of the, the content category. It's not specific to OnlyFans, <laughs> no. no. Right. It just, you know, OnlyFans is just a way that people are able to more ethically consume this kind of content. They feel better about consuming it. They become closer to the people that are creating it. They can form those parasocial relationships, which has you know, positives and negatives as well. Look, 
I'm, I'm struggling here, Mark. I think this is a good thing. <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast and NITV and Cam Wilson from Crikey, although you can call him Internet Boy and he will respond. I've discovered it. <laughs> How comfortable are you talking to a robot about your deepest, darkest feelings? Very. Very. Well, it turns out you are not <laughs> alone. Uh, Cambridge Research has found that a 60 centimetre tall humanoid called Now, which I do believe you have to say like that, yep. is particularly helpful at, uh, at helping children open mm. up about their feelings. Now, Now is, is not a new piece of technology, right? Now has been around for, sorry, Now has been around <laughs> for a while. But the idea that uh, it's a tool that helps children open up about their feelings. How is it that they discovered this? Yeah, so this is a, a recent study that's come off the back of a, a bunch of previous studies, actually. We've looked into how we feel about disclosing personal information to robots for quite some time. And look, I know it sounds nefarious. It sounds like we're giving a, a big evil tech giant all <laughs> of our information. But what these robots can actually do is you know, assess things like our, our mood, assess our mental health generally. And I think that this is a really positive thing, to be honest. If we're able to open up more, if we're able to let those barriers down, if we don't have that fear of judgment that we have when we're interacting with people, for instance, then we can access better mental health services. And this is what this study is discovering. So just to describe it now is, you know, I mentioned it's about 60 centimetres tall. Mm. It's sort of, you know, it's white. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's not soft. There are kind of examples of sort of soft robots out there. Obviously, there's example. Um, there used to be, years ago, I, I did a story in a... Um, uh, in a retirement home actually in Queensland that was using a thing called Paro, which was a, yes. kind of a soft... Yeah. The soft, cat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they also do like a dolphin one, which was helping uh, dementia patients. So the, some of this stuff has been done before, but but now, you know, it's got little kind of uh, orange trimmings and it is very approachable. How is it that uh, it actually comes to interact with the kids and, and, and how are they kind of using those interactions and what is it picking up on, Cam? So the study was conducted, I think, on... I think just under 30 children. And what Mm. they did is they had a one-on-one session with this robot that went for about 45 minutes. And this robot, I think, asked it some general questions about their well-being, and then went through a questionnaire to assess whether it had, whether the child was feeling anxiety or other similar symptoms. And the intention was to say, well, can we use this robot to ask questions and get a a different kind of response. And what they found was that um, children who had, I think, already exhibited or shown signs of some of these, like an anxiety or other um, uh, states of being, they were more likely to actually give, I think, more detail about it. And they even found that children who hadn't previously reported some of these feelings felt more comfortable expressing them. And the, the researchers essentially thought that this the, these children were able to feel more comfortable, treat this robot almost as a confidant, not have that kind of social pressure, particularly if you think about kids speaking to adults, yeah. often adults they mm. don't know. Um, they didn't feel that. And, and according to researchers, you know, their idea is that they were able to be more honest about yes. how they were feeling. Yeah, I mean, this is... I guess anybody that has uh, has currently or has had small kids kind of... This doesn't... It actually isn't that quite 
surprising. No, no, it's really not. And we've all been talking to toys you know, since we've had toys. It's the same principle yeah. Healthy Harold, right? Like, exactly. Have you ever seen? Like, <laughs> you, sorry, my kids have been through Healthy Harold recently, the, 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 the giraffe, and I was like, why is that still a thing? And, of course, I thought about it, of course it's still a thing. Mm. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a lovable giraffe. It removes that barrier. It removes that fear of judgment. And it also removes that you know, part of ourselves that instinctively wants to please the person that mm. we're talking to. Mm. And kids especially, you know, they don't want to get in trouble. They want to do the right thing. And when they're talking to this robot who they view as more of a peer than someone in a position of authority, they don't have that people-pleasing tendency and they can be more honest and open about negative feelings in particular. So is this, I mean, is this knowledge transferable? Like if, if people are listening to this who are maybe teachers or, you know, school councils or just parents, is there, is there some aspect of this research that's transferable into our everyday life? I'm thinking. I'm thinking of a scenario yeah. where it would be ethical to record children's conversations <laughs> in order to find out how they're really feeling. And my answer to that is, is no. Is a hard no. That's a hard no for me. Oh, no, no. I, I look. These this sort of technology really can only be used in you know, professional environments, yeah. in controlled mm. environments. It's not meant to take the place of proper mental health care. It's not meant to take the place of professional health care. It's just meant to be a, a complement to it. I guess as, as a recognition that it is it has potential as a tool yeah. in, a, in a wider arsenal of, of kind of, Absolutely. of, of applications. Yeah. And this is something that we've seen reflected in a lot of different types of technology over the years. You know, I, I think of virtual reality as mm. well. You know, when we're in a world and we are an avatar talking to another avatar, mm. we're more likely to share negative experiences and feel comfortable being exposed to things that we wouldn't be comfortable being exposed to in the real world. Well, see, that was going to be my next question, Cam, which is, is how much of this is transferable to adults? Like, I, I, mm. instinctively, I get why this works for kids. Mm-hmm. I could do. Also, just particularly looking at it, and if you're near a computer right now, Google it because it's adorable. <laughs> yes, I will continue to say it just like that <laughs> because I'm a professional. Um, is there any part of this that's transferable to adults? Because I, I know that counselling via chatbots and counselling via text is something that has has increased. I know Beyond Blue do mm-hmm. quite a fair bit of chat-based counselling. Is there some part of this that you, you can see playing out with adults? Yeah, I think so. And this is a, kind of out of left field, but I do know that, you know, in the past when they do political polling, so when they ask people, who are you going to vote for? Traditionally, the, the best kinds of polls, the most accurate ones have always been face-to-face or someone calling up and speaking to them. Um, and with the emergence of phones and, and, and texting, there became another option that you could text people. And those kinds of polls were t- typically viewed as being less reliable. But interestingly, over the last few years, for a variety of reasons, they're now recognised as just as reliable and being used in, as, as Amazing. Um, like in, uh, in being used as well. And the interesting thing is because they reckon it's because people feel like they're being judged less by the person who's listening to their polling results. When they say, I want to vote for someone, they don't have to worry about it being socially desirable. They don't have to think that, hey, I'm voting for X, Y, Z, and I, don't, I think that that's not very popular. And that it's actually more reflective of what someone does in the polling booth. It's also that, you know, anonymity as well mm. in a in a way. You know, we feel like we can be a lot more open when we are a little bit removed from ourselves. It's a it's a basic psychological tenant. It's very very interesting. Mm. I want to see where this goes, but I also really want a now. <laughs> Okay, it's become a cat. I don't know how that happens. Look, it's its fault for being called Meow. 
Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It's a very professional show about media, technology, and culture. Uh, Cam Wilson from Crikey and from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast and NITV, Ray Johnson. Mark Fennell is my name. You can also call me. Yeah. Uh, actually, quite a serious story. Um, watch me try and make this, uh, this incredibly awkward segue. Really quite serious story about one of the most controversial online message boards that has essentially been taken down. What is Kiwi Farms and what happened to it, Cam Wilson? Kiwi Farms is a online message board that has kind of got most of its attention from the fact that it is a place that is used to coordinate harassment of people online. It's the new 8chan. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think it actually came off 4chan at one point, kind of splintered off. It's um, been implicated in multiple suicides and users kind of go there because of its reputation as a place that uh, coordinates real-life harassment, everything from doxing, which is a term that means revealing someone's private information like their address with the intention of causing discomfort or harm, all the way up to things like swatting, which is when you call in a false police report on someone with the intention of SWAT police going there, having interaction with them. Sometimes people do legitimately die out of that. And this uh, this forum in the past uh, typically has targeted uh, people like trans people and neurodivergent people. It has been around for yonks and yonks and yonks, and there's always been a kind of push to get it offline, but it has always been self-hosted, which means that, you know, there's not a, another company that essentially is providing the services for it to be uh, online. Um, but recently, over the last month or so, there's been this campaign from a famous uh, trans uh, streamer whose name is Keffels. She's from Canada. She had been uh, doxxed and targeted by this forum. And so she led this campaign to uh, drop Kiwi Farms and focused on a company that wasn't its host, but was providing another service uh, they called Cloudflare. And after a, a long kind of battle over the weekend, they finally decided to stop offering them that service, taking the website down. So why was this the strategy that they went with, going after the internet services company? The service that Cloudflare provided Kiwi Farms and about 20% of the internet, according to them, is uh, not hosting, which is where, you know, you have the data on a server and every time you go on your phone, it pings the server and says, hey, can I please have this information? That's how you, you see the information. They provide um, a denial of... a sorry, distributed denial of service attack, which is a fancy thing for saying um, pinging the server lots of times with the intent of overloading it with the intention of bringing it down. So essentially, you know, a cyber attack. They provide that service and that has meant that it's kept Kiwi Farms online. But because they say that we don't actually host it, we're not the ones who are, who are uh, kind of holding the information, we're just protecting it. They've made this distinction that they are not responsible for it. They're just providing a service. And in, until recently, they've pretty much never really kicked anyone off it. I think they've kicked 8chan. I think they kicked a neo-Nazi website. Um, they say that we're, we're an infrastructure company and we, we should be treated kind of like a, a telecom insofar as like you don't say when someone calls someone up and says something wrong, you don't say, you know, Optus has to take their number offline. But because of the commercial pressure that was placed on there, yeah. there's so much like this website really is feral that eventually um, they decided to take it down. But they said it's not because of the campaign, but because on this website, we've actually seen escalating threats in response to your campaign, essentially almost saying like you made them more violent and as a result, we have to take them offline. Very convoluted. Yeah, they called it an imminent threat to human life that was being experienced. So wait, so so Cloudflare, the company that in effect like protects them, mm -hmm. said that they would no longer protect them mm -hmm. 
because the attacks against Kiwi Farm, mm-hmm. a place that coordinates attacks against others, were getting too intense? No, so they were saying that um, Kiwi Farms, in response to this campaign, was becoming more violent and as a result, we now need to, we can't host them anymore because they're getting more violent. So they're saying your attempts to get us to drop the service has actually aggravated them more <laughs> and therefore we now have to take them down. So like you got what you wanted, but really you were to blame. Right. So so, <clears throat> so they'd taken a position where they <laughs> didn't want to be the arbiter of what could and couldn't be online. Exactly. But Kiwi Farms just took it way too far so they had no choice but to step in. But also what Cloudflare has done is they've, they've created a bar higher. Yeah. Right? So Because what, what Cloudflare would be afraid of is a is a too low bar because because if the bar is is like it's got inexcusable content on it like a lot of the internet's got inexcusable content on it <laughs> if that bar is set there then suddenly they there's a, a precedent set for taking everything off what Cloudflare in effect have done has created a whole new bar so to justify taking this down right is that the is that the issue here with it? Because they don't want to be in a like clearly no internet company wants to be in a position of being an arbiter of content. Like every internet company under the <laughs> sun, they resile from it. They they, they don't want to be in charge of, of, of policing content, but they have to at some point, right? Yeah, and this is the point that right? they've reached, mm. and it is at the imminent threat to human life. But the point. thing that strikes me about this is that the way that they've been able to justify it is by creating some kind of new category <laughs> of horrendousness. He's like, that's the impression I get from hearing you describe it. Is, is that wrong? Yeah, and I think it's also, we should point out, pretty disingenuous because this forum had been actively um, coordinating real acts of violence against people. Like swatting someone is a violent act. Releasing someone's detail who then gets stalked, all that kind of stuff, that's real-world harm. Mm-hmm. This this explanation, it, to me, feels quite disingenuous because at the end of the day, it's almost like placing the responsibility for this online radical website. The responsibility for them acting poorly is all on the people who have been victims of that violence and harassment. The thing I find fascinating amongst, I mean, so much of this is fascinating, but the the idea of Cloudflare wanting to be regarded as, as sort of a utility, mm-hmm. as sort of an infrastructure. I mean, they're a commercial company. They're not, you know, the Department of Agriculture. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, and I think that's often the thing with the like, I I often struggle with this because it, because of the way the internet, well, the the World Wide Web and the was was born, and I guess the ethos in which it was born, is built in this sort of like, you know, this, this idea that. It's you know the, the idea of content neutrality is sort of built into the de- is sort of built into the DNA of it, and, and yeah. for the longest time people would fight for things like net neutrality, the idea mm-hmm. that content shouldn't be part of it. But it feels like the world has shifted under its feet, and companies like Cloudflare that are not content companies can't really ignore the content that they interact with. Yeah, anymore, and right? and companies are made up of people and mm. people work for those companies and they abide by morals and ethics and you know, it's really difficult to work for any company these days that doesn't have some sort of code of conduct of how their employees and their business and their company wants to project itself online, offline. They need to bring those values into who they're providing services to as well, I believe. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think the other aspect that's made this possible is that a lot of the internet has become centralized in these massive companies. Mm -hmm. Like Cloudflare says, I offer these services or we offer these services to 20% of the internet. That then means that they're kind of responsible for all of this and they're responsible for the most extreme fringe cases in that 20%. Whereas I think like early days of the internet, most of the stuff was kind of self-hosted. And so you've just got a computer that's plugged into a cord and then there's not really much anyone can do to take it down. Now there's a new avenue made possible by the fact that so much of the internet is kind of controlled or made possible by a very small amount of companies. Are we going to see companies rise up from this that are supportive of platforms like Kiwi Farms is what I'm wondering. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I just, it, uh, I, I, yes, is my prediction. I've got to uh, shiver down my spine. I'm <laughs> laughing so I don't cry. Yeah, because human nature is bad. Anyway, download the shows what you're listening to. <laughs> I wanted to get to the last things. Um, uh, because of uh, the strange propensity of major tech companies to introduce uh, tiers where you have to pay for things, I wanted to introduce a, I'm going to call it a game. It's called Would You Pay For? Mm. Um, for the longest time, there is one piece of functionality that many a Twitter user have asked for. And for many years, they have denied this functionality to us. And that is an edit button. <laughs> you send a tweet. And it's out there. Your choices are only to delete it and then rewrite it. But now they have given us the potential to edit a tweet. And for that, it will cost $4.99 a month as part of their, their Twitter blue subscription service. My question is, is $4.99 US a month worth an edit button, Ray Johnson? Absolutely not. I'm not giving Twitter any money whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I believe that... Introducing an edit button to Twitter would take away the humanity of the site, Ooh. would take away from the fact that it is just a jumbled stream of consciousness of everyone that you follow. And I think that removing typos removes the ability for us to get closer to people that we look up to. They say never follow your heroes sometimes you do follow your heroes on Twitter and they make a typo and it makes you realise celebrities are just like the rest of us. Keep the typos. I don't want the edit buttons. Sometimes I follow my hero Cher and it's more typo than sense. And that's actually what, if you don't follow Cher on Twitter, you are missing out because it is some like A-grade stream of consciousness. It's beautiful. Uh, $4.99 a month to edit your tweets. Yeah, I reckon I'll cough up. I you am. will. Yeah. I know you will. Yeah. I, as oh, soon as yeah. the reason I yeah. picked this is because I knew you were coming on the show. I'm like, I camel pay. Yeah. Camel yeah. pay. Yeah. No way. Uh, I, I'm a terrible um, typer. I leave words out all the time. Uh, this would make me seem maybe a little bit more professional when I need all the help that I can get. Mm. <laughs> uh, and the inverse of this, uh, which is a not paid for version of uh, something we, we're likely to see before the end of the year, which is a an ad supported version of Netflix. Of course, people have played for the, the video streaming service Netflix for a long time. Uh, looks like there'll be an ad supported version that comes out before the end of the year, at least in the US. We don't know when it'll come out in Australia. We're looking at about four minutes worth of ads per hour. Would you give up a paid for version of, uh, of Netflix if uh, if it meant watching ads, Cam. Mm, so they're trying to do like a kind of prestige product here and that they've, there's a lot of detail about how they're going to make this a really good ad viewing experience. But still, I oh man, I just, I don't want to see ads midway in a series. That's not what I want. So I think I'll probably stick with what I'm paying at the moment. 
Yeah, so they're, they're saying only four minutes of ads per hour. You'll only, I think there's there's limits on how many different ads you'll see mm-hmm. and pre-rolls. Or, you're right. They, they, they're trying to sell it as like the, the fancy ads. You're not going to see like buy, 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 sell. <laughs> They'll be like the ones with the nice smooth shots of the cars and storytelling mm. brand ads is how they're selling it. But uh, would that be enough to give up a, a paid for subscription for you, Ray? I will take the free Netflix. I will watch the ads. There you go. You seem shocked. <laughs> no, no. I'm actually just, I'm actually shocked that we managed to get disagreement on this show. <laughs> 90% of this show is people sitting in this room furiously agreeing and then generally ending with, and it's a dystopia and Mark Zuckerberg's a fault. <laughs> so it's just like, it's just weird to have actual disagreement in the, in the show. Yeah, no, look, I like ads, especially well-made ads. The only service that I have ever caved on to buy a premium version of so that I didn't have to hear ads anymore was Spotify. Oh, yeah. I could not deal with the repetition. I think if the ads were just the same ad over and over again for four minutes, then, yeah, I would consider upgrading my Netflix to the paid version. But if they're good ads, I'll I'll watch them. They're an art form in themselves. I'm totally bringing back what you pay for. Uh, (laughs) And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. If you enjoyed this, you'll enjoy that. Uh, You can check it out on all the different podcasting apps. And, of course, you can see Ray on NITV. Ray, thanks for coming back and joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. And Cam Wilson, internet boy, you can read his work in Crikey. Thank you so much for joining us on Town Boat this show. Thank you for having me. My name is Mark Fennell. I will also answer there. No. No. Catch you next week. Goodbye.